welcome to the Brainy Bunch podcast. Thank you for joining us. My name is Raina, and for this episode, we explore some interesting topics that are somewhat of a continuation of previous episodes, so be sure to check those out. Today, we'll be discussing CBT, or Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, and our ability to rewire our brain. tonight, we look at how the pandemic is affecting the mental health of college students. Students have long been prone to stress, anxiety, and depression. According to the CDC, three out of four Americans between the ages of 18 and 24 report poor mental health tied to the pandemic. In this short PBS news segment from January of this year, college students come forward about how difficult life has become and how many are simply not okay, especially with the heightened isolation and depression, in addition to uh, the academic pressures, separation from family, or maybe even work responsibilities. And now a huge concern is the mental health crisis college students are experiencing. And it has become an urgent matter, especially with COVID-19. There is medication out there um, to help students and young adults, such as benzodiazepine, which mainly helps with anxiety, uh, and SSRIs, which are antidepressants. Uh, And the medication works. Uh, It could be extremely beneficial to those in critical need. Um, But there are also side effects to consider. Um, Benzos are highly addictive and could potentially have withdrawal symptoms. Um, SSRIs will change the brain chemistry and take some time to actually be effective. So another method is therapy. specifically cognitive behavioral therapy, which is, I think, a bit more natural, um, a long-term solution maybe that tackles the root cause of the problem, the source of the problem, rather than the symptoms. And there are studies out there that demonstrate CBT being more effective than medication in treating certain disorders, um, such as social anxiety disorder. Um, There are also other situations where it might be best for one to go undergo both drug therapy and cognitive therapy simultaneously. Uh, It just depends on the individual. But I think what CBT ultimately shows is that our brain is quite amazing and can undergo immense changes that would significantly improve the quality of our life. So in in the 1960s, uh, psychiatrist Aaron Beck, uh, also known as the father of CBT, uh, actually introduced this idea of therapy, this this practice, this psychosocial intervention that aims to improve our mental health. And CBT is this evidence-based treatment, so based on real scientific research that focuses on um, our relationship between our thoughts, feelings, beliefs, 
and behavior. Um, These negative thoughts we have are challenged and examined then transformed into more logical, positive thoughts. So rethinking and reevaluating how we see the world while avoiding unproductive thoughts and behaviors. There are problem-solving techniques associated with uh, CBT, which allows us to sort of face our fears and perhaps use positive reinforcement techniques. So a CBT session will usually be um, with a patient and a therapist. A typical CBT treatment will be one to two sessions per week, the sessions lasting 30 to 60 minutes per week, and um, a total of around 10 to 20 sessions, really depending on the patient and their needs. So it's pretty extensive, the identifying specific problems, the becoming aware of unproductive thoughts, the learning new behaviors. And this might last a couple of months since the patient most likely will be consistently working towards a goal or experimenting or testing out certain behaviors. And what we've seen or what scientists have seen is that CBT tackles or helps with a variety of issues ranging from social anxiety and social fatigue to panic disorders and phobias. Ultimately, um, this is a critical examination of your thoughts, beliefs, and behaviors, and then taking control of them. I'll, I can give a hypothetical situation so we can see what it really looks like and what it does. So first, there might be a critical incident that might have triggered some sort of deep emotion. And I'll use a relationship breakup, for example. Um, This isn't me or true, but just a hypothetical of what may or can occur. And after this incident or breakup, there will be a lot of feelings and thoughts communicated between the patient and therapist. And the therapist might use a sort of laddering technique to get to the core beliefs and the assumptions. And if I were the patient, I would say, I just went through a terrible breakup. I feel alone. I feel sad and anxious and depressed. And I feel like it was my fault. And the therapist would um, probably ask the patient to dive a little deeper and to really see what the patient is thinking. So um, to continue, if I were the patient, I would probably um, say um, that something is clearly wrong with me and um, now I'm going to be alone forever. So with this technique, uh, we would then get to the core belief. And in this case, it would be, uh, I am inferior. And some other core beliefs are, I am unlovable or everything I do is wrong. Um, My worth depends on what other people think of me. And I'm constantly seeking other people's approval. 
And you might be thinking, well, this isn't necessarily true. I do think I have worth, but this core belief could be your biggest fear, uh, the thinking of what if this were true. And this thought will ultimately drive other assumptions. So our next step would be identifying those assumptions, what sort of assumptions and rules could be derived from this core belief, um, which is in this case, I am inferior. And one might be social withdrawal, for example, avoiding social interactions because, you know, I don't want to feel worse about myself based on what other people think of me or I might procrastinate, not feel motivated so that if I don't try, the outcome doesn't really matter and so on. And the third step would be to problem solve and experiment. So we might understand that this is the right or wrong way to think, but how do we then implement this into our daily life? How do we really believe and continue to believe that this is true? What we would do is we would take a rule and and then challenge it. So do an experiment with some stake, um, some significance, uh, but not too much. For example, going back to the hypothetical, going to an authoritative figure, maybe a counselor or a professor, um, and have a conversation. I ask for areas that can be improved and accept some criticism. And what the patient and therapist might do is predict what would happen and go through some of the thought processes associated with that particular action or behavior or experimentation. And after that, the therapist and patient would come back and talk about the previously mentioned assumptions and rules and demonstrate that these rules are not universal. They're not true. So we would shake these core beliefs and after realizing that they're not true, we would then turn them into something positive. So for example, instead of thinking, oh my gosh, I just bombed this exam. This is the end of the world. Maybe, okay, this exam might have not been my best work, but I'm a dedicated student, willing to learn, willing to overcome obstacles and limitations, and continue pursuing my goals. Again, it's really easy to say these things, but to truly believe them will take time and effort and sort of switch all that thinking, the shifting, shaking of core beliefs, and turning them into something positive. And another way of thinking about CBT is to view our thoughts um, as if they were an iceberg of some sort. We would have our automatic thoughts at the tip, 
But underneath that surface, we would have our core beliefs and even assumptions that are driving us. And this is not something that we normally see or examine. And CPT is essentially going deep into our thoughts and behaviors and really bringing awareness to it. So it's a really critical examination. Um, While CBT doesn't seem like a drastic or quick change, there is real scientific research, concrete evidence that demonstrates the, um, not the emotional change, but rather the physical, structural changes in the brain that also occur. So a lot of research has been done on anxiety disorders and how CBT can treat that. From the medical journal Translational Psychiatry, the article Neuroplasticity in Response to Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Social Anxiety Disorder first shows how with anxiety disorders, there is excessive neural reactivity in the amygdala, um, an area in our brain where experiencing emotions are involved. So socially anxious people uh, exhibit greater neural responsivity to self-preferential criticism before treatment. Uh, In our previous episode, Ren goes and explores the topic of anxiety and GM volume much further. But essentially what we see is that through these PET scans and fMRIs or neuroimaging, they found that there's a positive correlation between the amygdala GM volume and anticipatory speech anxiety. And after CBT treatment, there is reduced anticipatory anxiety. And this reduced anxiety is correlated positively with CBT-induced reduction of amygdala GM volume which is connected to the detection of threat and activation of appropriate fear-related behaviors in response to threatening or dangerous stimuli. While there are many other studies involving phobias and depression, anxiety disorders are only one example where CBT has worked really well. And I do think it's worth mentioning that CBT doesn't work for everyone. Individual differences are also really important to consider. Um, In our episodes on phobias, Kate mentions that treatment effective for one person might not be effective for the other. And this holds true for CBT as well. Uh, Some people are just more resilient than others. And I also talked about the length of treatments, which uh, typically lasts around 12 to 20 weeks. But um, there's also this myth sort of going around that CBT has a time-limited nature or that it's short-term. But Dr. Beck explains that patients have different learning curves. Some will just catch on faster, integrate the techniques, and get better sooner. Um, However, in reality, there's so many factors that can come to play, such as the severity of one's illness or the type of one's illness, um, the personality of the individual 
or the level of support the individual has in their environment. But ultimately, what we do see is that um, where there is successful CBT treatment, we also will see changes in the brain, so structural plasticity. There's also the idea of um, emotions coming before thought. So um, that emotions and feelings are automatic, uh, like when we feel like we're in danger or when we get these feelings of depression. Um, For example, how can we sort of control how we feel or our emotions before we even have this concrete thought? To answer, sort of answer this question, um, a scientific paper from the University of Zagreb in Croatia, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy and Neuroscience Towards Closer Integration, reports that for most stimuli, we need a volitional cognitive evaluation in order to develop an emotional reaction. So we process information in various ways. One way is bottom-up processing, which is primitive, automatic, effortless. Um, This implicit, pre-conscious information. Um, Whereas top-down processing is slow, deliberate, rational processing that uses rule-based knowledge to guide the information processing system. So different regions of our brain are involved in emotion regulation processes. And studies indicate that CBT is associated with decreased activity in the amygdala hippocampal subcortical region, or in other words, bottom-up processing, uh, this automatic effortless processing. Um, But CBT increases the activation in the frontal cortical regions, so it increases the top-down processing. Um, So we end up using more rule-based knowledges to guide this information processing system. And a big part of this is learning to self-regulate negative emotions such as sadness and fear. So it's interesting to see that switch or more that we are able to switch the way we process information. And CBT is this very heavy emotional work. And the therapist is more like a tour guide of your experiences and they help you see things in a different way so that you can change your way of thinking uh, about whatever you're being impacted by. The focus is really on the patient and their ability to challenge and examine their thoughts and turn it into something that is positive and beneficial for their life, mental health, and overall well-being. So neuroscientist Andrew Huberman explores the concept of neuroplasticity in the podcast Change Your Brain, and it's really interesting. He explains that from birth to age 25, our brains are extremely malleable, and he says it's designed to be customized in the early parts of our lives. 
after age 25, it's a little bit more difficult to make the same sort of structural changes, for example, uh, learning multiple languages if we haven't already, or developing an entirely new skill. Um, but it's not impossible, he says. In fact, uh, Julia and Shelby go more in depth into language learning in our upcoming episode and how it's extremely beneficial for our brain. Um, but neuroplasticity is the brain's ability to modify itself in response to experience. In adulthood, it would require bringing focus or attention to a particular perception. So neuroplasticity, as can be seen in CBT, is triggered by this intense focus and urgency. So we have this neurochemical in our brain, acetylcholine, at the nucleus basalis, which marks certain neurons for change. We will think about something intensely during the day, and neuroplasticity will occur during deep sleep or deep rest. As college students, we probably put this in the back burner. Um, I know I do, but sleep is so important for our physical health, not just our mental health, but our mental growth as well. Um, Dr. Huberman also mentions how we have reflexive behaviors such as walking, talking to our friends, making coffee, which doesn't take too much energy, and Usually we have this tendency to go with the flow and stick with reflexive behaviors and reflexive thoughts. So if we want to make structural changes to our brain in terms of improving our life and well-being, it isn't necessarily easy. Uh, this change requires frustration, agitation, confusion, and stress. CBT, I think, is highly indicative of this. It's so easy to deny our beliefs or repress it. We don't necessarily want to think deeply about situations or go through situations that bother us or give us anxiety. But as seen with these plethora of studies on CBT, it is in our best interest to do so, to take the time and effort to improve our mental health. We are college students that want to be our best self, to be the best we can, and do the most we can, um, and live our best life. And I think what CBT shows is that our best life isn't necessarily easy. It takes the overcoming of uncertainty and hardships. And I also think that um, CBT shows that we have the ability to make these changes. So there are are so many reasons to be optimistic in our capabilities. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something and be sure to tune in to our next episodes which cover empathy, social isolation, and other fascinating topics. Until then, think happy, positive thoughts.